Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 2nd, 2023, a late Thursday afternoon. Not so late in California, late for the rest of you. And we're doing now what one tends to do on a late Thursday afternoon, take stock of oneself as a species, we humans. What have we been up to? We've been doing a lot of shows about what we humans are and what we're missing and what we can learn from the non-human population. We did one with Ed Yong, uh, the New Yorker, uh, writer on how animals can help humans develop empathy. Another one with Jackie Higgins, another naturalist on what animals can tell us about our senses. One with a, a science writer, Justin R Gregg, who uh, reminds us that um, animal intelligence actually reflects or tells us about our own stupidity. And of course, in all the shows we've done about the environment and our own short-sightedness, we're increasingly focusing on what one writer, Adam Kirsch, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, talks about the revolt against humanity. He even has a new book about it. The revolt against humanity, imagining a future without us. For, for many of us, imagining a future without us is not a particularly pleasant thought, but I wonder whether my guest today, who has a new book out, uh, Homo uh, Echophagus, uh, A Deep Diagnosis to Save the Earth, uh, Dr. Uh, Warren M. Hearn, who's joining us from Boulder, I wonder whether he feels that we should be mourning the end of the human species, if it is the end. Warren, uh, should we be sad about our own potential departure from the earth. We haven't done a great job, have we? At least according to your new book. Well, Andrew, you're, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on your program. It's an honor and I appreciate the opportunity very much uh, to speak with you and your listeners. Um, I'm, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, you asked some very important questions. It's not very clear to me how I should answer them. Let me just begin by saying the title of my book uh, is Homo Ecophagus, which means the man who devours the ecosystem. That is my new name for the human species. Uh, and that is what we are doing to the planet. Our current scientific name is Homo sapiens sapiens, which means wise, wise man. We are obviously and demonstrably not wise. So we are the most misnamed species on the planet. And unfortunately, we are in the process of destroying the world's uh, biosphere, which is our support system, as well as those of millions of other species. And what we're doing is terminal destruction of the living space that we occupy, and which is occupied by the species. So, uh, you know, the, uh, my book uh, includes an analysis of this which is not just a list of horribles, but what is the dynamic? What is going on here? What I have concluded after over 50 years of studying this is that human species now has all the major characteristics of a malignant process on the planet. And we're in the process of converting all plant, 
animal, organic, and inorganic material on the planet into human biomass or its adaptive adjuncts and support systems. This is a terminal diagnosis. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not good news, is it, uh, Warren? Um, uh, have we got anything positive to report? I mean, are we killing our, we're not just killing our planet, we're killing ourselves. Is that such a bad thing? Well, I, I happen to be among those who do not wish for us to become extinct. I would like to be proven wrong about my theory. Uh, I think that uh, the good news is that there are a lot of, of people and a lot of increasing number of people who are very sincerely dedicated to stopping this and, and proving things and stopping our destruction of other species as well as ourselves. And we have the tools to do it. So, yeah, the, we'll get to that. We've, we've had a number of people on the show uh, recently, like George Monbiat, the winner of the Orwell Prize this year, British uh, environmental journalist, who I think are, are in your camp. Um, in all seriousness, Warren, why are we doing this? Is it because we're selfish, short-sighted, dumb? Well, there's a temptation to look for the culprit and blame somebody or blame ourselves. But what I'm looking at is a long-term process of the human species developing cultural adaptations that have helped us survive and which have benefited many people. Obviously, we have many benefits of modern civilization and healthcare and, and many of the amenities that we enjoy every day. Uh, but as some of these adaptations have become malignant in the sense that they are causing the problems that make everything worse. And it's a positive feedback loop that will eventually kill us. So we have to think about what we are doing and what we've done for thousands of years that we must do in a different way. You're based in um, in uh, Boulder, Colorado, one of the nicest places, I think, in the United States. Uh, in, in some of the coverage, the local coverage, you've lived there for a long time. Um, you're known as the hero of the Homestake Valley and the, the chairman of the Holy Cross Wilderness Defense Fund. Have you been a lifelong uh environmentalist uh warren is is that your calling i will we're going to talk a little bit about your calling as a doctor as well but it w when did you wake up if you like to, to what was going on well let's put it this way my father my parents took me out into the wild areas when i was very young and these are some of my earliest memories that i cherish and i used to go up into the homestake uh, valley with my father uh, 70 or more years ago when it was very wild and I've watched it change and the the, the destruction of the Homestake Valley uh, is one of the most appalling things that I've ever seen and caused me a great grief and, and distress and, and I, I had already begun to look at what we are doing to the world in terms of population growth and destruction of all of our natural resources and natural ecosystems. So I was very much involved with looking at that when the Homestake Dam, for example, was built. Uh, as far as being here, the Homestake Valley, I don't know that now I accept that and I, it's a great honor, but it, that was a, an, a something said by a journalist who uh, very much admired what I was doing. But all, let me just say that, that I began increasingly uh, aware of this as I worked in Latin America and I came home and found the places that I love being utterly destroyed by so-called development uh, for diverting water, for example, from the western slope of Colorado with lots of water and very few people to the eastern slope where there's no water and a lot of people. 
So uh, why are we doing that? And that was a cultural adaptation to the survival needs on the eastern slope, which had very destructive effects on both sides of the continent. Well, Warren, talking about too many people, is that the basic problem when it comes to the destruction of the earth, overpopulation, too many people? Well, it is an essential part of what we're saying. Uh, obviously, uh, when we were, uh, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 million people back in the 10 or 12,000 years ago, uh, we weren't having that much effect on the planet. Uh, and, and But now we're 8 billion, and the, this is not sustainable. And this is combined with many destructive technologies, which are, uh, the, which are just finishing off the biosphere of, upon which we depend for our own survival. What, um, you know, many, many books have been written about this theme of the, uh, of the destruction of the earth, our destruction of the earth. I'm sure you've, you've written, uh, not written, you've read many of them, Warren. What, yes. what, uh, what are you bringing to this that hasn't been said before, do you think? What, what's your narrative that will um, add to this, this corpus, this literature? Well, I would say that uh, instead of simply lining up the list of horribles, which is uh, done by many people, and I have done it in my book, I'm, I'm questioning what is the basis for this process? What is the origin of it? What are the dynamics? And I'm a physician. I'm trained to look at patterns. And one of the things that I saw back there over 50 years ago that uh, cities in particular have this, have this very visibly, but uh, we, have, we have all of the major characteristics of a malignant process that I learned about in medical school. Uh, and uh, the first four are rapid uncontrolled growth, which has characterized the human population for thousands of years. Uh, invasion and destruction of adjacent normal tissue in a body and call it ecosystems. Metastasis, which is distant colonization, and dedifferentiation. Oh, this is, is more than um, so. Your analysis is scientific. It's not just metaphorical in terms of humans as a, a metastasizing cancer. No, this is a diagnosis, and uh, and uh, the the cancer is a clearly identifiable phenomenon in organisms. And I'm saying that we are now a super organism on the planet that has all of the characteristics of a malignant process. And that means that this process will continue until the host organism dies, stops functioning. And in our case, the, the host organism is the biosphere. It's um. It's a uh, it's it's a very intriguing and I think for for many people certainly a controversial and a and a rather depressing diagnosis, uh, Doctor Hearn. Um, I, I'm curious. We did we've done many shows on humanitarianism of one kind or another. One with a, a um, Jane Olson, a, a California-based humanitarian, spent her life going around the world helping people. In your analysis, if one wants to be a humanitarian in in the world that you're describing, where humans are themselves a cancer, how do we do it? Can one be a humanitarian these days? The difference between us and a cancer is that we can think and we can decide not to be a cancer. Cancers can't do that. We can, and there are lots of brilliant people out there 
over the last it's, uh, centuries, actually, and certainly now, who know exactly what to do about this and how to stop this process, but they're not running the world. We have had people running the world who, in fact, want to make this worse. We had one in Donald Trump, for example, in the Republican Party, who was dedicated in the environmental policy, rape and pillage. That's the Republican philosophy. Are there people who... You have a little bit of the, the, the TR swagger about you, Warren. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, who loved uh, the environment, who created the American network of, 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 of national parks. Um, have there been politicians in history who haven't joined this metastasizing cancer? Are, are there politicians today who you respect, Al Gore perhaps? Well, there are a number of, of leading people on the and the American scene, for example, right now, who have uh, worked very hard uh, to uh, change the direction of what we're doing. Um, in Colorado, we happen to have two outstanding senators, Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, uh, who are very, very protective of the environment. We have our members of our congressional delegation. Uh, uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson was one of the persons who, who started Earth Day. Uh, we've had many many uh, political leaders on both sides of the aisle who have been very uh, interested in helping protect the environment. Uh, and, uh, the, and, 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 the, and the list goes on. Uh, one, of, uh, one of the former U.S. senators who endorsed my book is Senator Tim Wirth, who I've mm -hmm. known for most of my life. And Tim uh, led the environmental issues in the United States Senate. So did uh, Senator Al Gore when he was there and did that as vice president. Uh, 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 President Biden has uh, worked hard with his administration to protect the environment, and uh, and th these these people uh, have done uh, great work, but uh, the progress is very difficult and slow. And so I think that um, uh, Tony Blair, who was the Prime Minister of England, uh, made a major uh, announcement when he was a Prime Minister about these very issues. Uh, that we have to stop uh, destroying the planet in the way we're doing it. So there, there, there are many people uh, who are leaders, and people like Jane Goodall, for example, who's a naturalist, who's been a, a voice for conservation and protecting the environment. And I think that uh, there, there are plenty of examples, but the political systems uh, are not responding very well to these warnings that are given out by thousands of scientists all over the world. Um. You, uh, alongside, in parallel to you, to, to, to your writing and to this, uh, this, this very interesting uh, argument about who we are as a species, you're very well known as a doctor. You've been involved uh, with an abortion clinic in, in Boulder, I think, for, for many years. Um, and, and you're quite controversial in that respect. How do you piece together your two lives? Are they connected or are they entirely separate? Your commitment to the right for women to have an abortion and your analysis of our destructive qualities as a species? Well, I think the answer is uh, a little bit of both. That is to say, I developed interest in both of these subjects independently. Uh, first, as someone who loved the natural environment, want to protect it, and that's a lifelong uh, interest and obsession. And secondly, as a public health physician, I saw the terrible consequences and injustices 
of unsafe illegal abortion as a medical student and later. And I became quite aware of the need uh, for safe abortion service, which is a fundamental component of women's health care. No, there's no justification for requiring a woman to carry a pregnancy to term whatsoever. There is no justification for any legal restrictions on abortion services. It's a medical issue that affects women's lives. And so I feel very passionately about that. And that has been a major part of my medical experience. Uh, the clinic you mentioned is my private medical practice when I help women. But uh, that is uh, quite independent of my concern about the issues of population growth and environment, which I've developed in my academic. Right. Uh, it, it seems to me well. that there is the connection. We talked a little bit about overpopulation. Certainly the people opposed to the, the, the right of a woman to have an abortion um, have a, a kind of cult of life. And is that cult of life associated with overpopulation and our lack of respect for our planet, do you think? It's not a cult of life. They kill doctors who don't agree with them. Their policy is to assassinate the doctors. This is called killing for life. So the, the term pro-life is a total propaganda lie. They are very aggressive in their anti-abortion violence have over the last 45 years. Uh, but and you've been on the front lines of that, haven't you? You've been doing it. I've been the target of these assassination attempts. Five of my medical colleagues and, and many other uh, people who are helping with women's services have been assassinated. I'm on all the hit lists. Uh, and what, what does it tell you that a doctor who devotes his, his time or her time to helping women is the target of an assassination in the United States? It's bizarre, pathological, and madness. But that's what the situation we are. It happens, in terms of the connection between these two things, it happens that helping women control their fertility in the safe and dignified and medically uh, correct way, uh, according to what they want, happens to be very consistent with helping people in general control their fertility, which is absolutely essential in the uh, situation with the growth of the human population. We need to spend uh, a, a considerable amount of money in helping women and their families all over the world control their, any fertility, their own fertility by any means available that is safe and, and medically effective, whether it's contraception, abortion, and sterilization, and, and various other things that help people control their fertility. So it, it happens that my clinical work as a physician is quite consistent with my concern about yeah. the issue of population. Yeah, and, and I take your point very seriously about these people trying to assassinate doctors, as you say. You, you, you've seen that from the front row, unfortunately. But I wonder, I mean, there are some people, I guess, uh, who are opposed to abortion, who are genuine, uh, genuinely religious, genuinely believe in what we might think of as the cult of life. I wonder if there, there's a need um, for people like yourself or m the kind of movement that you're trying to trigger to develop an alternative kind of religion, a religion perhaps of the planet, uh, a religion disassociated with human beings. Is that possible, do you think? I mean, because you've said that this cancer, this metastasizing cancer that we represent, it isn't inevitable. And we humans have the agency to undo it. So how do we do that? 
Well, for one thing, we stopped drilling for oil in national parks. We, we stopped using fossil fuels for energy. We stopped using fossil fuel fuels to grow. No, fuel. I, I agree. With, I understand all that. But do we need a, a belief system to enable us to do this? Uh, you know, first of all, my general view of religions, with some exceptions, is that they're a form of collective psychosis. And, and the, the beliefs and imaginary beings and things does not really help us. We need we have plenty of scientific information that help us understand what is going on in the world. And that is really the proper place to look. Uh, if, if people develop a spiritual need to save the planet, I'm all for that. Right, but uh, you have, uh, in, all, in all due respect, uh, Warren, you're not, your love of the land isn't scientific. It's not coming as a doctor. It's coming spiritually in some way or other. When you, when you walk around the Holy Cross wilderness, it must bring out some spirituality, some some metaphysical quality that can't be quantified or turned. That is into my life. cathedral. That's that what? Is my cathedral. Right. So you have a church as well. Well. I, I would say with the natural world is not the same as being involved in a church, which is generally about power. So how do we create a church without power, a church that prays to the land? I don't think we should bother trying to create a church. I think we need to help people understand that this is a matter of survival, life and death. And I, I, I think anything we can to help people understand the beauty and the wonder of the natural world and that it must be preserved and saved quite aside from uh, for, because its own right, quite aside from its utilitarian goal of helping us survive. We did a show with a science fiction writer earlier this week, a San Francisco based writer, a very talented one, Annalee Newitz. Uh, she imagines the future in 60,000 years time. Uh, she has a new book out, The Terraformers, in which we have the technology to essentially create nature out of barren landscapes. Would you see that as a dystopian future if we can indeed develop the technology to build or rebuild nature? Well, in the first place, I don't think we're going to last that long. Uh, and the second thing, I think it's a preposterous idea. We need to protect what we have because it's not going to happen again. The, the forces in terms of the, the, the planet, in terms of the geology and the atmosphere, and the physical forces involved in developing the biosphere in which we have are not going to happen again. And we can't make it happen. We are not smart enough to invent a, an environment complex enough for us to survive. We are in the process of destroying the unique uh, uh, living system and biosphere that we have as fast as possible. A lot of people have their foots on the accelerator as we head for the cliff. We have to take a foot off the accelerator and stop this madness. Can we learn from uh, other species, Warren? Uh, as I said, Ed Young believes we can. We can develop empathy. So does Jackie Higgins, even... Uh, Justin Gregg believes that we can learn something, at least about our own lack of intelligence when it comes to animals. Should we be turning to nature or what's left of nature to make sense of ourselves? You know, there have been literally millions of incredibly bright people, scientists and others who are, uh, who are tuned into the natural world who have shown us how important this is and how beautiful it is. 
and our general policy as societies is to ignore them. I mean, one very specific example is von Humboldt, who visited uh, Colombia in the late 19th, uh, 18th century, uh, and he was there on a trip with a colleague of his, and he was uh, was told, for example, about a lake uh, in Colombia that where the water level was dropping, it had no uh, outlet, and, the, the, and and people couldn't. Why is the lake water dropping? And he looked around. He said, "Well, you're cutting down all the trees." And that means that what we now call evapotranspiration couldn't happen. It changed the climate. This is over 200 years ago when von Humboldt, who's one of the most brilliant people ever lived, walked around and just paid attention to what he was doing. And, and, and so we, the, a more recent example is, is uh, Professor Paul Ehrlich at Stanford, who wrote, uh, who has written brilliant work, uh, and he and his wife, about the natural world and systems, and he's, a, he's an expert scientist, and uh, he's talked about the need to uh, limit population growth and protect the environments, and he has written eloquently about that, as, as have his colleagues at Stanford and many other places. So we simply need to pay attention to the information we already have, and it's being trashed out by people who are opposed to understanding, who are opposed to facts, who are opposed to science, and who are opposed to really uh, making sense of the world that, uh, in a way to protect it. You mentioned von Humboldt, 19th century naturalist, um, who came to Colorado, saw a different world. There was, of course, uh, a, a different kind of human being, perhaps, in, in Colorado and all over North America before the Europeans showed up. Can we learn from, quote unquote, Native Americans or Native peoples who had a different relationship to nature and the land? Can we moderns, we Europeans, learn from uh, what, what a group of people we once defined as primitive but increasingly seem much more sophisticated than us? Well, it is true that in many Native uh, society, Native American society, for example, uh, there is a, a great consciousness and awareness of the natural world and respect for it that we have not shown. Uh, and, 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 for example, uh, Chief Seattle, uh, for which the city is named, uh, was uh, one of the th uh, leading thinkers about this. Uh, and there, many Native Americans have shown this understanding of their relationship to the natural world that European societies have not. Uh, but it is also true that as human beings, they have exploited uh, the environment, and that is true all over the world. Uh, there are many instances where uh, in, uh, intact uh, Native ecosystems collapsed and the species went extinct almost instantaneously after human beings appeared on the scene. This was true uh, in the South Pacific, uh, and uh, it was uh, and true in Southeast Asia, and it was certainly true in North America during the Pleistocene when people came across the Bering Land Bridge uh, or by by watercraft into uh, the northern hemisphere, the North America and South America. Uh, we lost a lot of me megafauna. At one point, North America was kind of like the Serengeti, uh, and 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 so that. Uh, there's, there's, the, the issue is, are you a human being or not? And, and, and human beings have had the 
the custom and the practice of eliminating a lot of the natural environment and simplifying ecosystem from our very beginning. And that has been true more in the last 12 or 13,000 years with the invention of agriculture and the domestication of animals than it was before that. Hunter-gatherer uh, populations, uh, some of whom still exist, have very little effect on the environment. And, they, they, and, and, and they, I've seen this in the, in, the, in the Amazon in Brazil, it's widely known. Uh, but I think that uh, as, as these destructive technologies are introduced, uh, uh, they, uh, they are almost forced to become part of that system. Um, Warren, finally, I, I wonder if you yourself could be deployed as an argument against your critique of hu human beings. You're an enormously impressive man. You're in your mid-80s. You're still um, working uh, as a doctor. You've been fighting the crazes for generations. You've been doing good. Now you have this important new book. Um, you've defended the environment. How would you explain yourself and your life in the context of, of your thesis in, in your book about humans being so destructive? Well, thank you for your very kind words, uh, which I take seriously. Uh, but I, I may not be as impressed with myself as you are, but I think that uh, that all I can well, do that is adds to, to my that that adds to your 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 mystique. Well, thank you. All I can say is that I have gone through life trying to pay attention to what's going on around me. I had wonderful parents uh, who loved me and helped help me understand a lot of these things. And, and but those were the days when it being an environmentalist meant that you mowed your lawn twice a week and you threw your cigarette butt uh, into the weeds after you put it out. I mean, so things have changed since those days. But I mean, I would simply say that uh, my parents, uh, particularly uh, my father, were very tuned in to the natural world and they both had a great sense of social justice. So, you know, I, I, I credit my parents with a lot of whatever I am now. I've had lots and lots of wonderful people in my life who, who loved me and who I loved and who taught me a lot. And I'm not just talking about people in the school system, educational system, but in my life. And so I've been very, very fortunate and privileged uh, to have a, an excellent education here in Colorado and other places and to be around incredibly interesting, wonderful people who taught me these things. So uh, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, but, but, you know, there are many people who have these opportunities and, and I know a lot of them out there who are doing these things. So uh, the, the problem, as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> is the almost unbridgeable gap, it seems, and gulf between the, the people who are well-educated about the world, who understand scientific thought, who understand the, the survival situation we're in, and people who are deliberately ignorant and who have a lot of power, which they use irresponsibly. So one of the only things we can do as citizens of the United States is go to the ballot box and people and vote for people who will who, who will help protect the world and the environment and help us uh, carry out reasonable and intelligent policies.